Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There is nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up the racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kesson reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if, she asked, so-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis? Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Thank you for listening. Brittany Lovejoy is the mother of four children with dyslexia, a writer, a private tutor, and a dedicated advocate for students. She has served as a special educator and has a graduate degree in the Foundations of Education with a concentration in dyslexia studies. Brittany pursues literacy truth by studying the science of reading. Good morning. Would you please state your name, professional background, and what town you are from? Yes. Hi, my name is Melissa Culver, and I am from Essex Town, which is part of Chittenden County. And I work as a licensed clinical mental health and addictions counselor. I work at a small group practice in my town, and um, I have some background working at the University of Vermont at their counseling center with traditional age students, graduate students. Would you please give us a little background of your family's experience with literacy in the public school? I'll try. It was definitely, um, school for us was very overwhelming. Um, I'll say that when I was uh, raising my newborn and toddler and, you know, like four or five-year-old daughter, she was very easygoing, happy-go-lucky, a very curious girl. And I brought her to public school when she was well, officially enrolled at age five, which in hindsight, I didn't realize in Vermont, you could wait until age six. And I think that's an important thing for people to remember because although my daughter was very verbal and outgoing and had participated in dance classes and lots of things away from home, I think developmentally that year can make a difference for kids. But we dropped her off at the curb and tried to follow all the protocol and the rules that the teachers were setting 
And my daughter really had a hard time transitioning into the classroom. Um, she struggled with the classroom size being over 20 kids and just really a lot of unexpected things. Like I, I really thought she would thrive. I thought she would love it. I thought she, she, you know, she certainly had an easy-ish time making friends. So we had good support and whatnot, but she really struggled. She really struggled. Um, she became a worrier. She started worrying about a lot of things. Like she didn't want to get called on in class. She would stay up at night, like worrying about um, what grouping she was going to be a part of at different tables. Just lots of things where I was like, why, why is this five-year-old worried about this? Like, isn't she supposed to be just curious and having fun and enjoying the process of learning? And for us, that process of learning was lost. Like the joy of that was lost. And she she got to a place where she really, um, at age five, at age six, um, was refusing to go to school. She disliked it that much. And I tried to work a lot with the teachers to understand what was going on, like what's happening. You know, like I would look at some of the uh, homework that would get sent home and things would be incomplete or her name would be spelled wrong or, you know, lots of things. And, and teachers assured me that she would just grow into being a better learner. And they talked a lot about how she just lacked confidence, that she just needed to take some risks as a learner, that she was too cautious. She wouldn't start assignments unless she would get one-on-one -on -one instruction. And so I kept asking, like, well, aren't all of these things concerning? Like, are these things that might, you know, might merit like having some kind of testing to see if there's anything else going on. And I was repeatedly told no, you know, that she didn't really meet a lot of what they believed were factors or like symptoms or whatnot of, um, of learning disabilities. They really just chopped it up to her anxiety. I constantly was working with the guidance counselors. I was constantly working with the school teachers trying to come up with plans and trying to figure out ways to just meet our daughter where she was at and what her needs were at that time. And I found it really challenging um, to the point where we just became exhausted. We really became exhausted with the fight, with the battle, with the distress at home. I chose to pull her out in homeschool. I think, I don't know if I really answered all of the question there. I guess I'm thinking like, I, I think what I trusted, I trusted in the system. I trusted that the teachers knew what to look for. So when they were saying, your kid's on target, she just has some anxiety that she needs to work on. I, I believed them. I believed that they, I believed that they would know how to help her learn how to read keep her motivated to stay in school. I believe that they would find ways to um, encourage her learning. And, and that wasn't happening. She was beginning to dislike school more and more. And at home, she never wanted to read on her own. She never wanted to do any of the assignments that might have gotten sent home with her. And as a mom, I, we read all the time in her early years. So I just kept reading to her. I kept we kept reading together and she loved listening to stories. We'd get into lots of um, book series and things like that. And she loved listening, but she had no interest in trying to 
tackle that uh, obstacle of learning how to read. Um, in hindsight, I think what we've learned is that she, she could read to some extent, but I think she had just memorized an enormous amount of sight words and it was enough to get her by in those early years. Uh, what grade was she in when you found out she had dyslexia? Well, she, we pulled her out of public school at the end of second grade. And at that time, I worked with a colleague who gave me a referral to somebody that would do testing. And since the school had kept telling me no, my husband and I chose to pay out of pocket for testing. Now, what I didn't understand at the time, and what I feel is a bit unfortunate in terms of my school district not partnering with me to help educate me on some of the maybe red flags or, or just even say like, hey, we're not seeing what we need to see to do the testing, but if you wanted to do testing on your own, here's some ideas of how to go about doing that. So what I didn't understand really is the person that did the first testing for us didn't do a comprehensive psychoeducation evaluation. She did a psychosocial evaluation and did some intelligence testing and some of the pieces of the educational testing, but not anything that would screen for dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. So I kind of let, we kind of went through this whole testing with an understanding of like, I guess she has this anxiety, which we understood at that point was causing some issues with learning. So third through seventh grade, we homeschooled. And at that point, I knew that my daughter was still struggling with literacy. She was st struggling with some issues in math in terms of like following sequences. So we again chose to pay out of pocket for testing. And this time around, over however many of years trying to learn about how to be a homeschooling parent and learn about just developmentally, like how are kids learning and whatnot. Um, at that point, I understood like I need a comprehensive psychoeducational evaluation and I found the right resource at that time. And so she was um, 12 and a half by the time we were able to get her diagnosis for dyslexia, which is tricky because, you know, at that point, you've missed that early identification period, that early time to really dive into intervention. And so when you're a seventh, eighth grader going back and trying to do those remedial skills, I think can oftentimes be really discouraging and has a big impact on your self-esteem. And those skills would have been learned in kindergarten, first and second grade when she was enrolled in the public school. And so um, exactly. Uh, the, what happens to the emotional and mental health of students who fall behind in reading? You know, it's such a hot topic right now with COVID, right? Everybody's talking about what's going to happen if my kid falls behind if they're not at school. And, um, and I just think, yes, we're all in this boat now, but my goodness, like I think a lot of us that have been struggling to work with schools around kids that, you know, we think our kids have learning disabilities and the school's missing that. Like we've been having this conversation all the time. Like my kid's been behind the whole time, but all that aside, I think I think what we what we know, and I can speak a little bit from like my mental health background and whatnot, is that there's a comorbidity or 
co-occurring disorders that go hand in hand with learning disabilities. So anxiety is a really big one. Some kids are often diagnosed with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. A lot of kids have issues with social interactions with their peers. You know, their whole self-esteem generally can just decline. And so their sense of who they are as a learner mm-hmm. and what they believe they're capable of as a learner, I think can suffer tremendously, which can really lead to some pretty significant anxiety for kids, some depression. And we know over time that kids, I mean, my daughter, as early as kindergarten, was refusing school. And that looks really different as a five-year-old when I have a lot more, let's say, uh, for lack of a better word, like power and control over her, right, as the early elementary kid. But as she started to get older and her school refusal was showing up as a, a teenager, you know, this gets more complicated now, right? Like there, there are kids that are at risk for, you know, self-harming behaviors, suicidality, substance abuse, like any kind of escape from the distress that school and that setting might be causing them. So I think there's that, that piece, you know, this is probably a whole other podcast topic, but we know that there's a lot of kids that end up being incarcerated. There's that whole school to prison pipeline like the school system, I think, can start to let kids down, especially once they're reaching that middle school years, right? Because I think early on, what I'm understanding is that kids are taught in those early elementary school years, or they're supposed to be taught, you know, phonemic awareness skills and like the literacy, literacy skills that teach them how to read. So they're supposed to master skills on becoming able to sound out words, um, piece words together to make sentences, the comprehension, they pick up speed or their rate of reading starts to increase. So they're learning all those skills in those early years. And if that's missed, when you start to get to be in middle school where the expectation is, you already know how to read. Now you need to learn content from your reading. These kids can they're just so behind and they have to work so much harder because they're trying to sound out words and make sense of what the sentence meaning is, like all those orthographic kinds of things. And I think it can be very discouraging. I think we also see somatic illness symptoms showing up, like kids, especially with anxiety, uh, when they're feeling a lot of distress, you know, I think if you think about a time when you're feeling anxious, right? Like your heart rate might increase, like your breathing changes. You might not feel well. You might have digestive issues. And so all of these things, headaches, like muscle tension, you know, these start to show up and that might be one way that kids are kind of refusing school, like unintentionally, right? Like they truly don't feel good. They really don't feel good because their body is saying, I'm massively stressed out. And I don't know how to fix what's going on at school. I think a lot of kids don't have the language. They don't understand why. Like my daughter was always very verbal, but she was never really able to say to me like, mom, I can't read very well. I can't read as well as the other kids. She couldn't articulate that. But what what did happen in her body was, you know, the headaches, the she got significant chest cold. So she legitimately was ill, but I think it had a lot to do with the stress that she was under 
being in a system where people expected that she was at a certain level of learning because she was verbal and she was a polite girl and she followed the classroom rules. And so she was a good student, but she, I think she knew inside, like she didn't understand what was going on a lot of the times. And that was very different than what she was seeing of her peers. You know, the peers that the teacher asks a question and they immediately pop their hand in the air. Um, she knew like, how come I don't know those answers? Like I'm not as smart as the other kid. And so I think there's a lot of self-esteem issues that can start to really bubble up in those, those middle school years in particular. And then, you know, just to take it a step further, like when you're heading into high school and even into college where you're getting into really uh, specialized degree programs where you're, like say you want to go into the medical field, like there's a whole set of language that if you don't know how to sound out those words in your textbook, like, I don't know about you, but we're not sitting around our dinner table, like having conversations that include tons of medical language. So for some kids heading off to college or heading into high school and taking higher level courses, like they might not have been exposed to that vocabulary. And when you can't connect sounds and letters and make sense of it in your in in a written context like it's kids are really falling behind and and it takes them I don't know five times ten times like however long it takes them significantly longer to do the same amount of work as what's expected of peers that don't have learning disabilities so I think it's an unfortunate cycle for kids to get stuck in if they're not identified early and they don't get the services they need, right? Yes, I agree with you. Um, what else do you want lawmakers, educators, decision makers to know? I've been thinking a bit about that saying, out of sight, out of mind. And I've been thinking a bit about how my daughter and what her needs are and were back in those early elementary years. Um, and I will say that we tried to, after paying a second time for the comprehensive psychoeducation testing, I naively thought that my daughter would get school services. I thought she would qualify for an IEP. And so for her eighth grade year, we sent her back to public school. I'll also mention we sent her to a private alternative, kind of a cooperative school, like in her fourth grade year. So we have tried public and private education and systems have failed us along the way. Um, I never intended to homeschool. I, that was the last thing that I ever, never in a million years did I see myself as a homeschooling mom. I really did it out of desperation to keep my child's mental health, physical health, just our family's health and well-being intact because we were falling apart trying to remain a part of a school system that was not seeing our needs or hearing our needs, wasn't providing us support. And it's exhausting to be that parent who's constantly, you know, calling up the guidance counselors, calling up the teachers, asking for testing, asking for support. And in some cases really being told this isn't any of your business let your child do what they need to do and we will figure it out for them and I'm like well how many more years do we have right she's 
13, eighth grade, whatnot. So I guess just getting back to that saying of like out of sight, out of mind, I think the other piece about learning disabilities is that they're hidden, right? And a lot of kids can, they can compensate and they have these creative workarounds to keep up with their peers. And they're oftentimes very bright. In fact, some of them have some of the highest IQs, right? They're like these twice exceptional kids. So I, I think what's really unfortunate is that when you don't have a visible disability, there's not something, there's not like a behavioral outburst always that's happening in a classroom. A lot of times these kids are just silently suffering at their desk. And uh, teachers, I think, um, because Vermont does not have universal and early screening to detect dyslexia or other learning disabilities, because people have struggles with writing and with math and with auditory processing, there's a lot of other pieces to this, right? But Vermont doesn't do any kind of early screening. And I think that we all know the earlier you can identify a learning disability, and the earlier you can get some intervention treatment in place, the outlook for academic success is much, much better. I'd also like to tell lawmakers, educational decision makers, like I have taken it upon myself to go to tons of trainings and seminars, and I've tried to educate myself on how to be a literacy teacher for my child. And what I found very surprising is that Oftentimes, I'm in a room of like 200 other educators, and when it's time for sharing, people will raise their hand saying, I just barely finished my graduate degree like a year or two ago. I never learned any of the stuff in the seminar today. We didn't talk about dyslexia. So I think it depends, of course, on what, you know, undergrad or graduate program that you're specifically choosing. Of course, that all varies, but I think across the board and here in Vermont that we don't have a big component of, uh, there's not really a focus from what I'm hearing on how to train and prepare teachers to recognize signs, symptoms of learning disabilities and giving them the skills that they need to support these kids. So even if you're a special educator, you might not have any coursework or any training and how to give structured, explicit literacy education to these kids. So I think, you know, another piece is Vermont doesn't have a dyslexia bill, right? This spring, I think for many, many years, there's been a lot of parents that have tried to work on just getting the word dyslexia into the language of our school system. And I think that's so important. And I can speak to that from a mental health perspective. When people come in, or just like if you go to the doctors, right? If you go in and you've got all these symptoms and um, worries and concerns, you need a proper diagnosis. So using the correct terms gives us all a common language to say, you know, these, this child meets this criteria. And when you have a proper diagnosis and you know what they're struggling with, then you can use the evidence-based science that's out there to meet their learning needs. And there's tons of it out there. We know like places like Yale, which are very reputable. We know that evidence and that science is out there and it's been out there for many, many years. 
So these are things I think are important for Vermont legislatures and educators and um, parents to be aware of as well, because I think it helps inform decisions around curriculum, right? And again, this is a sidebar, but curriculum, like that's probably billions and billions of dollars worth of, like that's an industry in and of itself. And so if you're not using a curriculum that's meeting the needs of your kids, it's, it just creates this vicious spiral, I think, of, of losing kids along the way. Like we risk continuing to lose kids because we're not helping them feel confident in their abilities as learners. These kids are very, very capable. They're very bright. All kids, all human beings, we're all wired to want to learn. And so finding a way to meet them where they are, meet them with a program that matches their learning needs and learning styles. It's just so important so that every kid truly can get that the education they deserve. What has the process of pursuing special education cost you and your family? Well, um, I'll say I think my daughter and uh, as a family, but even individually, my daughter, if we look back on these um, early educational years, it just was filled with stress. Like I, I feel like we were kind of robbed of some time in our life that was supposed to still be joyful and carefree and filled with like inquiry and like magical wonderings of like, what is life all about? And and I'm disappointed, like I'm disappointed that a lot of those early years for us were spent trying to manage anxiety that was rearing up in a classroom. You know, I'd find that when we would take my daughter out for blocks of time, like it might be a vacation, I'd, I'd let her stay out for longer windows of time. And it would, it would be like life would get back to normal again. And I'd recognize my, my daughter, I'd recognize like her laughing and her, you know, just lightheartedness, her curiosity, her just, you know, love and joy of life. And it's sad for me to think about how challenging it was for her to be in an environment where she felt so disempowered. So that emotional toll, and it, it creates kind of a vicious cycle, I think, because those, those early years, you know, you start to create in your mind kind of a story about who am I as a learner? Am I capable of doing what my peers are doing? Like, am I smart enough? And so for many years, we've had to try to work with our daughter to say, like, you're deserving of an education. You are capable of doing whatever you set your mind to. You might be doing it in a different way and your educational path might look different, but you're capable of doing that. And I think that whole rewiring of the mindset and whatnot, it's taken a toll. You know, it's, it's not an easy fix when you start to create a story about who you are in your life at these early years. So I think that emotional piece has been hard. I will say that I feel fortunate that I was in a job that I was able to have some flexibility in. And my director was really very generous in terms of giving me some time off because I, I wanted to be able to work and partner with the school as much as I could because I wanted to keep her in the school system. And I recognize that not everybody can just, you know, go to a school meeting in the middle of the day for like a whopping 20 minutes or whatever they're willing to 
you know, allot you for time. But eventually, you know, as I said, I pulled her out of school to homeschool. So I, I left my job for a window of time. And see, we, like I said earlier, we have had to pay for all of the testing that we've done. And I will say that when we had my daughter go back to eighth grade in the fall, which again, as a middle school student returning to public school in a system that continued to fail us. I guess that's what I wanted to say is like, you know, we tried again. And once again, it stirred up all of those like negative pieces around who I am as a learner. And I, th- I think that I recognize that I have some privilege in this and and I've been able to pull her when I want to pull her out and not everybody can do that. And that wasn't easy for us to do. We've had to make some big sacrifices as a family to figure out how to do it. It's definitely taken a toll because my daughter would really like to be at public school. A lot of times she says, I just want to be there with my peers and be like, like do what everybody else is doing. And she also understands but they don't help me. When we finally, it took, like I had given the school last June a copy of this comprehensive psychoeducational evaluation and report. We didn't have an IEP until December. And even in December, uh, the objectives and goals really didn't focus on her literacy and math needs whatsoever. For example, one of her goals or I would say her IEP was filled really with more accommodations because it was things like, oh, you need help with reading and it's hard for you to focus in a classroom. You can go into the empty classroom next door and read by yourself. So instead of saying, you know, we're going to give you some structured literacy support, that was one of their offerings to us. And again, I'll mention I live in Chittenden County and in a school district that I think is sought out by parents. And we have resources and funding that might look different than other communities and rural parts of Vermont and in other parts of our country. And we still left because I could not get my daughter the, you know, the the education, the special education support that she needed to meet her math and literacy needs. I think school districts right now are putting a lot of money into social emotional behavior interventionists. And I think that's, you know, we live in really crazy times. These kids need emotional support, but I I think it's unfortunate that, you know, once again, the invisibleness of learning disabilities that gets put on the back burner and what they want to look at is, you know, can this child manage their anxiety in a classroom? Can they use one of their relaxation skills and get themselves into a calm place? And it's like, that's fine. And that's important. But they need that in addition to special education services that that they're entitled to by law. Melissa, what are some of the challenges and successes you've had with homeschooling? I have to say that overall, our homeschooling experience has been very positive in terms of regaining my child's sense of, you know, her own self-esteem. Like she's been able to, that's had a huge boost for her and her physical health has 
we never go to the doctors. When we were in public school, I was taking her to the doctors all the time for chest colds and I'm sick, headaches, tummy aches, this, that, the other thing. So our physical and emotional well-being has really, you know, that's, that's where we've seen the most benefit. I think one of the mistakes that I made as a homeschooling parent early on, and again, getting back to the curriculum, is that you feel like I need a curriculum. And one thing that I would advise like new homeschooling parents against is maybe like immediately buying a curriculum that just because it works for the friend or there's a bazillion Facebook postings about how great it is or whatever. Again, that's a lot of marketing. And I think it's important for people to really get to know your child as a learner, like get to understand who they are, like how do they like to learn? Like some kids are very hands-on and they need to be moving and they need that kinesthetic piece. Like lots of kids need to understand like a big picture and have a project to work on. And under, that's why they can like pay attention to all the details along the way because they're working towards something that's like a bigger end goal. You know, for my daughter, she is all about learning about things that are like current and meaningful in the here and now. So, you know, like climate change and things like that, like doing lots of projects on things that she feels like she's making a difference and she's learning something that creating skills and just that passion for learning again, right? You want your kid to be a lifelong learner. We're all lifelong learners and you just want them to enjoy that process. And so I think that early on, I was very guilty of recreating school at my kitchen table. And lots of seasoned homeschoolers will say like, don't do that. But I think, you know, my own anxiety of like, am I doing enough for my child? Like I just broke away from the traditional, we send our kids to school and we broke away from that. And so I definitely had feelings of my own insecurities around like, am I doing enough? Am I giving her enough? Will she be prepared enough in the world? And what I have to say is that my daughter's educational path looks very different from what, you know, the peers and families that we stay in touch with at public school. But my daughter's had her own resume since she was like 11 or so, you know, she's, She's got this entrepreneurial spirit, and so she's been able to um, land dog sitting jobs and dog walking jobs and plant sitting jobs. She's been a mother's helper. She's had opportunities to have real life work experiences at a young age where she's been able to boost her self confidence, where she's been able to learn a lot about figuring out, like, what am I going to need to know if I have this job? And so she has become kind of more of an independent, self-directed learner, which I think is really exciting. And I think that it keeps that internal or intrinsic motivation alive and well, versus when I'm like parsing out, like you have this spelling list and you have to read X chapters in this book and you know, that's all like externally driven. And I think kids can lose their passion for learning. So I think one of the beautiful pieces of homeschooling is being able to just figure out who am I in this world? Um, what kinds of things do I enjoy? You know, especially if you have kids that enjoy artsy things, or they enjoy music, or they enjoy um, 
maybe, like I said before, hands-on, they're, they're builders. They have opportunities to do things where they're learning really valuable skills. And they may not have those opportunities in a classroom setting, in a public school setting, where the curriculum is very, everybody's going to follow the same track, right? So I think that what I'm hoping that with COVID, like it's such an unfortunate situation, and I, I, I don't envy parents that were just thrown into homeschooling overnight, or I should call it pandemic schooling, because I think it's different than those of us that have been traditional homeschoolers. Yeah, I, I don't envy educators or, or anything at this point. But what I'm hoping is that some parents might see their kids are really thriving right now, right? They don't have to worry about that peer and classroom dynamic, and they might be freed up like that energy that they were expending on trying to keep their anxiety managed can just be freed up because they're in the safety of their home. Their learning might look very different. They might have opportunities to just explore different avenues of, of topics and modes of learning and whatnot. And, and some kids, I think, are going to really thrive because their needs will be met in a way that they haven't been met in a traditional classroom setting. So. I think we're seeing homeschooling applications. I've, I, the latest statistic I heard in just Vermont alone, they're up like 75%. So our home study office is just inundated with paperwork of trying to get new families enrolled in homeschooling. So I do think that this unfortunate pandemic um, is giving us a chance to like really look at what are the educational needs of our children and it's a great opportunity for us to reevaluate how we're delivering educational services and the content and, you know, using the technology and just bringing kind of an, in my opinion, antiquated model of education into today's world. So I think there's some exciting opportunities I'm not saying it's an easy task to do and it's um, unfortunate that we're trying to do it all like overnight and quickly, but I think that there's, there's some really, really wonderful things. You know, for me, the other piece that I'll say about homeschooling is that I was able to work with my daughter, even though I, I suspected that she had learning disabilities, but again, I trusted in the teachers. They told me she didn't have them. So for me with homeschooling, we were able to just, work at my daughter's pace. We were able to review things as many times as we needed to review things. We were able to, you know, take a topic and learn about it from different angles and whatnot. So I think homeschooling, you know, one of the, the biggest pieces is that it's like one giant accommodation, right? You, if you're creative and you're willing to do the work and figure it out, you can really help your kids get their educational needs met. Like I said, my daughter always enjoyed listening to me read. Um, I would help do uh, writing for her. So I just helped her along the way. And as she became more at ease and had more confidence in herself, like she started to have motivation and desire to pick up the skills that she needs to have in those core areas. We have had to hire tutors. I have used online courses. We have had to supplement because I'm not able to do all of it. And sometimes I think that parent-child dynamic can get tricky, especially in these teenage years. I think sometimes it's 
it's nice to have opportunities for mom to be just mom and daughter to be daughter and just that mother daughter parent child relationship is is really important so i have to step back and say like where can i outsource things and developmentally my daughter wants to be out there making relationships with other educators other adults other peers and that's healthy and thankfully here in vermont we've had a fairly sizable homeschooling community so there's a lot of support for it in Vermont, but you definitely have to seek it out. And sometimes it can be hard to kind of find your, your, your community, you know, your peers that you sort of settle in with and you, it, it's tricky, but it, 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 it can work if you're willing to put the effort into learning how to go about doing it. Do you have any additional comments? I guess for me, I would say to parents that have kids that are struggling in the public school system, and you just suspect that something else is going on, even if the educators are telling you like, no, um, it's this problem or that problem, or don't worry about it, it'll work itself out. I would say trust your gut. And I would say that you know your child and you know what your child is like outside of school. So, you know, for me, I would, pick up my kid from school and she was completely exhausted. She was just like we've talked about some of the emotional toll that the public school setting had taken on her. A lot of kids that doesn't happen for them, right? Like they they are happily dropped off at the curb and they go about their day and they're learning what they need to learn and they're involved in, you know, 101 different activities and life just seems to flow more easily for some pockets of kids. And if that's not happening for you, and if your kid wants that, your kid is entitled to have an education that's free. Now, granted, there's some, you know, I, I know the whole FAPE or the free appropriate um, public education. Technically, I think the law says that's only for kids that have specific disabilities and whatnot. Other people can speak to those pieces uh, are more versed in that than I am. But, you know, at the end of the day, every kid is deserving of a public education. And every kid is deserving of having an opportunity to sit in a classroom where they feel confident, where they feel respected, where they feel like they're making contributions, where they're excited to learn and grow and be a part of a community. And if that isn't happening for your child, you know, I would say just keep pushing back on those teachers, keep having those parent-teacher conferences, work with the guidance counselor. You know, I was doing all of those things and I felt like I was hitting a brick wall. I had to reach out to other parents in the community that I knew had kids on IEPs. Um, I started learning a lot about learning disabilities and just trying to educate myself as much as I could. Um, I think you can find mental health counselors that are skilled in working with kids that have learning disabilities and understand developmentally what's appropriate and whatnot. So I would say just reach out wherever you can. Your pediatrician might be able to help you. Just try to tap into any support that you can get for yourself. There's advocacy groups like the Vermont Family Network is one that you could use. I think lots of states have decoding dyslexia chapters and Vermont has one as well. 
So find places where you can get information, where you can get support, educate yourself, and don't give up on being an advocate for your kid, right? Like I think advocacy can be exhausting and it's hard to sometimes feel like the difficult parent, but in the end, you have to stick with it and get support that you need as a parent to help you move along that advocacy path because it seems like it's not just a a one-time thing. You're not going to just negotiate an IEP or some accommodations for a 504. You're going to be on an advocacy journey during the course of your child's educational career. And, you know, ultimately you're wanting to empower your kids so that they know how to advocate for themselves, but you're going to be a big piece of that journey. So make sure that you're just supporting yourself as best as you can with people that are really listening and honoring you and honoring what your needs are. So uh, your daughter's heading into high school this year. And uh, what is that going to look like or possibly potentially look like? Yeah, well, I have enrolled her to be a home study student again. And with COVID and this opportunity for remote learning, we're curious, right? She's done well as a remote learner where we paid out of pocket to have private classes and tutoring and whatnot. So remote learning can work well for her. So we're exploring options at our high school. And I think the conversation we're having as a family right now is in the past when the school has let us down, when things have been like the the stress has been too high, when educational services weren't being offered, we stepped back and I was the one trying to fix it. I was the one looking outside of the school to say like, how can I get her the support that she's not getting? And I think as a family, what we've decided is we're not doing that anymore. It's the job of our school district and our school system to provide the free appropriate public education that she is entitled to. So I'm going to keep leaning back in to the guidance counselors, to the special educators, to her teachers, And I'm going to really hold them accountable this time. I'm going to make sure that my daughter gets what she needs at the school. It's their job to fix that. It's their job to support her. As a parent, I just feel like I can't keep being the one piecing it all together and doing it for her anymore. And I think at the high school level, we have flexible pathways. There's lots of different options. And again, just the advocacy piece, like pushing back on the school to say, I know you can do this for her and I need you to do it for her. It's her turn and she deserves that. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing your expertise and experience and time with us. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Thank you for creating this platform so we can share our stories and concerns and uh, we appreciate all that you're doing to help bring awareness to these issues as well thank you you've been listening to back to freedom school ongoing discussions about some of the challenges facing vermont's education system and some of the opportunities to achieve equity in vermont's education system i'm your host infinite thanks again for listening